Good morning, Memphis. It is such a beautiful day in the Mid-South. I am so excited that we have some time together again this Saturday morning. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And don't forget that wherever in the world you may find yourself, you can also tune in online at wyxr.org. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Y'all, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and I know that many of us are taking more into consideration than just whose house is hosting or what side dish we're cooking. And in fact, many of us may be wondering if we would be gathering together at all, given the continuing rise of COVID across the nation. Um, of course, health has been a major focus of this year, and today I wanted to talk about health, but not just the coronavirus, but rather how we might consider health in in all of its forms, including health disparities and health equity, and how our healthiness is connected to, you know, the world around us. And so to do that today, I am joined by the phenomenal Mia Keys. Mia is the Director of Health Equity Policy and Advocacy of the American Medical Association, Previously, she served as the policy director of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust under Representative Robin Kelly. She was a Kaiser Family Foundation Barbara Jordan Health Policy Scholar, a fellow in the city of Philadelphia Deputy Mayor's Office for Health and Opportunity, an HIV AIDS researcher in South Africa, a U.S. Fulbright Fellow to Indonesia, and a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow. The National Minority Quality Forum recognizes Mia as a 40 under 40 leader in minority health, and the National Academy of Medicine features Mia's children's book on health equity in their national exhibit. Mia attended Cheney University, Vanderbilt University, and Meharry Medical College, and she is currently a public health doctoral student at the George Washington University. And, oh no, I'm not done yet, y'all. Mia is also a creative nonfiction writer with training from the University of Oxford. Welcome, Mia Keys. Thank you, Sanaa. I'm so happy to be here with you. You know, I, I, I'm so excited about your platform, really excited what you're doing about what you're doing and proud of you. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you were able to fit us in on this beautiful Saturday morning. Uh, please. <laughs> Anything, anything for you and what you bring to the people. Thank you. <laughs> good thank morning, you good morning. so much. Yes. Well, I want to go ahead and jump right into it because I know you just have a vast wealth of knowledge around health that I think people will really benefit from. So, I mean, from your intro, you've been all around the world, all across the country, investigating health in a variety of different communities and different contexts. So, could you tell us more about that and how those experiences Experiences have really informed your approach to health. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll for foremost say that I didn't get anywhere on my own, right? Mm -hmm. Very much everywhere that I've gone has been a result of the relationships that I've built with people 
within a particular place and they've said to me, you know, if this is what you're interested in doing, you're interested in really helping people to live their best lives, then consider doing this work. And remember, oh, whatever the needs are in this one community, these are very much similar to the needs of, of other communities that we would consider blighted or historically vulnerable or developing countries, right? You can look at things that happen in the U.S. South and very much map health outcomes across demographics to what's going on in South Africa, what's going on in, in Asia, um, different places where I've spent time. So I will say that I've very much learned that relationship is everything and truly just understanding that the work that we do, it impacts not just the way that we move and the impact that we can have on others, but it also just liberates other people to consider how they need to be moving in their own life. So I, I really think that if anything else, what I've learned is that my life is a catalyst for someone to consider where their realm of influence is, what their purpose, what brings them passion, um, and then how they can be of impact to others. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the main takeaway for me. Oh, I love that. I love that. Now, I know you said, you know, thinking about health, we can kind of see similarities in kind of health, health outcomes, whether it's in the U.S. or even in other nations. And I think oftentimes we don't think about that interconnectedness um, or even those similarities across different countries with how we're experiencing health. Um, so I love how you talked about that. Um, but can you tell us more about what are some of these impacts on health, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times we think health as very individual and mm -hmm. even in, I mean, let's be honest, in a global pandemic where it's like, it's obvious that it's not just individual, but in many ways, I think we still see a lot of that individualism, particularly in the US, like thinking of yes. health as just an individual, some, an individual impact. So can you talk more about health and the interconnectedness yeah, you know, I, I love, love, love this question. So if you were to Google health, for instance, you'll probably get images of people who appear as health providers with, with uh, stethoscopes around their necks. You'll probably see pictures of apples or people in workout clothes, right? And to your point, we think about health as an individual concern, as something that's within our own control, right? But really, when the, the things that we do in terms of our individual health outcomes, they only make up about 20 to 30% of, our, of, our, of what makes us well. It really is those more upstream systems-related issues um, that we call social determinants of health in terms of where you live, where you play, where you pray, where you work, and eventually how, you know, for how long you live is all influenced by these things that are socially determined, that are outside of ourselves, that are outside of our control. So, for instance, if you were to look um, at, you can even look at Memphis by zip code, right? And if you look at the greater, the greater Memphis area and take one zip code and look at it compared to another, you will find that people live more, or excuse me, live longer or shorter lives depending on what neighborhoods they live in. That has nothing to do with the decisions that they make for themselves, or rather it only has very little to do with it. It has everything to do with what access they have to fresh fruits and vegetables in supermarkets. That is an economics and that is a policy consideration that has nothing to do with the decisions that they make, right? Um, it has to do with how often they go to physician's office or or care providers, or whether or not they're playing outside. Well, those concerns have to do with how the city is designed. That, that is an engineering question. If the streets are safe, if the sidewalks 
are clear, if there are green grass, you know, if there's green grass and biking lanes, all of that is decided by someone else, which then does bring me to a consideration about political determinants of health, because all of those decisions are politically determined, but people have the power to put others in office to make decisions on their behalf, right? And so when we talk about health, we really do need to up, move our thinking a lot more upstream and think about, okay, well, civically, how am I engaging so that people in power can make the best decisions to optimize my own health, right? And the thing about it is, too, Sana, a lot of people become really empathetic about civic engagement, like who stands for whom, who benefits from political processes. Well, we, we all either benefit if we engage or we all really do see, um, you know, uh, re the consequences can be dire, you know? Um, so I would also say there, there are other things to consider. People might be conflating language, like the idea of, like you said before, health disparities compared to health equity, compared to health equality. Like these are very different concepts in a lot, but, but through like a really very fine line. Like disparities just means difference. It's really just a natural difference. So for instance, a natural difference with respect to health on average is that boy babies are born smaller than girl babies. That is an average difference. It's almost unavoidable. It's just the way that it works out, right? But if you're talking about Black babies born to Black women compared to white babies born to white women, and those Black babies are dying at higher rates or they're smaller at birth compared to the white babies, that is an inequity. That is an avoidable difference. That's something that because of policies that determine access to, uh, to gynecological care, to obstetrical care, that determine what a woman is eating, whether or not she's employed, whether or not she has insurance at birth, all of that is determined by political processes. That is an inequity, that is unavoidable, but that is different from disparity. And we have to make sure that our, our political processes see that and put supports in place so that people can make healthier decisions for themselves. So that, that's really what I would say about um, disparities and, and really understanding what it means compared to individual and, and, and systems related decisions around health. Does that make sense? Ooh, yes. I mean, you gave us so much information there. So I want to kind of tease apart some of the things you talked about just because um, I want to make sure our listeners really grasp everything that you just said, because there was so much in there. I mean, first, I'm just blown away by the fact that only 20 to 30 percent of what we consider health, right, is kind of our individual actions, right? How much we work out or how healthy, you know, we eat or thinking about what we think of as individual choices, right? Our own free will. Like I'm controlling my health because I'm, you know, running around my neighborhood or I'm getting my rest or you know, whatever the case may be, when in actuality, so much of health is really outside of us, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, these social determinants of health. And so I will actually wanna um, pause there and see if you would tell us more about social determinants of health, because as I was listening, I was hearing you talk about um, you know, where we live, our, our neighborhood, um, you know, where we play, um, even thinking about the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables, right? And I think probably a lot of people now have heard the term food desert um, and are familiar with you know, a lack of grocery stores and an increase in like fast food restaurants. <clears throat> things like that but could you tell us more about what else 
are contributors or elements of these social determinants of health. Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, where we play, where we, where we pray even, do you have access to social supporting institutions, right? That doesn't mean you have to be religious, but where are the places that you go and now it will be virtually go in a lot of ways, right? For for support, right? Because we do know that people who are a part of a large knit community science does demonstrate this. Those social network ties tend to be related to resources that make people better, right? Whether those resources are opportunities to learn about new jobs, to learn about new ways of preparing foods or um, going to uh, just, you know, just overall being tied to resources around, um, for instance, learning about wealth building, all of that is tied to our social networks. And our social networks are, are usually associated with regional place, but more specifically where we fall in terms of social, um, social cohesion, right? And so that, that's very much socially determined. We often don't know who we don't know because our networks aren't expanding into different into different ways like if you were for listeners if you were to think about the people you spend your time with where do you meet them how do you meet them who introduce you to them what level of um resources do you bring to each other like when you get up what do you talk about what do you tend to talk about um and a lot of what you tend to talk about has to be is generally related to the work that you're doing to the people that you're seeing to the drama you might be engaging in right <laughs> like all of that matters in terms of eventually the choices that we can make for ourselves to remain healthy right so that is very much a socially determinant factor of health and for, for myself like i'm a i'm i'm mid almost mid 30s single woman no children right mm-hmm. i want children one day i think they're cute. I, 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 you know, I have, I have plants and a puppy and a bunch of nieces and nephews now. I think I'm gonna want a child one day. But I, I, and I think I would want a child within the social institution of marriage. I think, right, because there are other things that are tied to, again, a social institution that would bear on eventual children's abilities to make healthier decisions in terms of wealth, in terms of all kinds of things, right? But anyway, right now I, I'm not yet ready for children. But I'm, I have things that I, I have choices that I can make because I have health insurance um, that covers fertility options. I have health insurance that covers um, a, a adoption if I, if I want to go that route, right? So all of that matters in terms of how I eventually want to move and impact not just my life, but the life of others. So we're thinking about health. Also think about your social networks and what each of you brings um, to the table and how you make each other well or contribute to each other's sickness. I'm, I don't have friends anymore who contribute to my sickness, but I've been there. And, and I know a, a good many of us have, have had stressful friends before. That matters in terms of your health. Yes, yes. I love that framing of it. Uh, thinking about those stressors, right, that our relationships can bring. So health, not just the physical activities that we're doing, but health as these relationships that can also help um, help us feel healthier, help us feel, even if that's like mentally stronger or mentally well, but then also those relationships that can impact our health because of the additional stressors that they're bringing. And I don't think we often think about health in that way. Um, Something else you mentioned was the political determinants of health. So thinking about 
the decision-making, policy decision-making that is impacting our health, that we can't individual action our way out of, right? Yeah. So that example you gave about healthcare and what might be covered in your health in your healthcare, right? That's mm -hmm. something that you can't individual, you know, solution your way around. Mm -hmm. No, you can't, you know, and it's, it's so interesting. So I, as you mentioned, I work for the American Medical Association. And for those of you who might be curious about what the AMA stands for, first of all, it's the largest national uh, body of, of physicians in our, in our nation, right? Um, most of the people who are doctors in the nation have some sort of tie uh, either directly or indirectly to the AMA, right? The AMA is is its own little Congress in that it has it's 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 run by its own policy building body, the House of Delegates, and the House of Delegates twice a year passes policies that determine how physicians are supposed to act, what what level of care they're supposed to deliver, um, how, how they're supposed to uh, collect their monies, right? In addition to that. The AMA has all kinds of money, all kinds of resources for lobbying. And lobbying is really just storytelling at a really very high level in policy spaces. So what they do is on the congressional level, as well as on the state level, these lobbyists of AMA go to, to lawmakers and say, hey, this is what, do what doctors want. We support this, we support that, we don't support this. So for instance, in the time of COVID, we support, uh, the AMA supports um, access to vaccinations. We support um, looking at and making sure that moratoriums on um, rent and uh, establishing protections for people who are unemployed, all of that, you know, we support it, right? But then we also do things like we just passed historic policy around things that you wouldn't necessarily consider in the health realm, like racism as a public health threat. The AMA for the first time in almost 200 years said, Doctors around the world, or excuse me, around the nation, now will stand on the fact that racism is a threat to our health, right? Mm -hmm. So that has almost nothing to do with um, what goes on in the in the medical establishment, but the fact that that doctors now and the lobbyists of on behalf of those doctors can go into policy spaces and and use that story, the story of George Floyd, the story of Ahmaud Aubrey, the story of Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, and you know Tamir Rice, and go on and on and on and say, look, racism harms. Racism often kills, and it certainly makes all of us sick, whether or not we're members of a, of, you know, a black, indigenous, or people of color. It, it, it impacts us all. So that's what I mean by political determinants of health. That you can take these stories, you can take these facts, and anecdotes for sure, but also the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Go, you give them to our lawmakers so that they can then have those laws that are within the medical uh, medical spaces scaled to you know into these national governing bodies so that we can then just be a healthier nation. So important, and I wonder, would you talk more about how we see racism as a health crisis? So not just in these kind of um, ways, as you mentioned, the many people who have been mm -hmm. killed at the hands of racist policing, but some mm -hmm. of the other ways that racism that we might not even come, you know, top of mind be impacting our health. For sure. So a lot of times when we're having a conversation around racism with respect to policing or immigration or even within the medical space, we're talking about interpersonal uh, racism, right? We're talking about 
what one person quote unquote does to another, right? Or how someone else views the other person based on their racial or ethnic presentation. That's interpersonal racism. While the AMA uh, does not condone interpersonal racism, what we're really trying to get at is the topic of institutional or systemic racism, where, where you see a misalignment of, and, uh, and of distribution of goods, of public goods, right? Whether those public goods be related to education, whether it be related to, uh, to, to where people live as a result of um, historic segregation, whether we're looking at um, transportation, where transportation uh, comprehensively goes. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with, with the public health, or excuse me, with the public transportation units in Memphis, but they don't go, the buses don't go to every community. And that's not by accident. Those are political decisions that are based in a systemic uh, unjust decision, right, framework, right? And that is in a lot of ways a manifestation of systemic racism because if, I mean, it sounds trite, but it's very true. If you do not have access in terms of mobility to certain parts of a neighborhood, that impacts to my earlier point, who you interact with, which impacts the resources and opportunities, the life, it really comes down to life opportunities that you have access to. If you can't be in touch with people who are going to roads, for instance, then you may not learn about the things that they know about, you know, um, and they may not know the things that, that you know about, but, but for the most part, the power structure tends to really honor those who, who are, um, who have access and who have life opportunities. So racism can really, on a systemic level, as it has to do with aligning resources and less to do with, because this is the other thing too, we're at a point in our nation's history where we, where all, everybody can talk about racism. Like um, white conservatives or, or conservatives in general can say, well, um, racism doesn't exist because white people are, can be poor too, right? Mm -hmm. That is conflating of the issue. It really has nothing to do, I don't wanna say nothing to do, when you're talking about like an intersectional identity in terms of race and wealth and socioeconomic status, you're looking at a system that advantages one group of people historically over another consistently, not on an individual basis. So I would really caution people not to get involved in stories about what one person did to another and, and, and the fact that that's over so then we don't have any more conversations of racism. You really gotta up your game and talk about what's happening on the systemic level because that's deep and everybody has a role in, in trying to make sure that we're pulling ourselves out of that, uh, that muck and mirror of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, yes, yeah. we all got to up our game and look at your picture. Absolutely. Um, well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, I'd like you to talk more about something you mentioned earlier, which is health equities and health disparities and really what that means and what that might look like, particularly the health equity part as we're moving forward. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Mia Keys, the Director of Health Equity Policy and Advocacy of the American Medical Association. Now, before the break, um, we were talking a bit about systemic racism and then even um, about health equities and ideas of health disparities. And I think this is a really key point for people to understand. You kind of mentioned earlier, we're not just talking about something 
know, it's dissimilar, but we're talking about the disparities. So could you tell us more, you know, what exactly are health equities and disparities? Yeah, so very basically, a disparity, even without using, using health as a qualifier, disparity is a difference. It's just a difference in terms of outcome, right? If you're looking at it from a health perspective, it just has to do with how one group of people have a very different experience from another group of people, but it's not harmful. It's not something that, um, that occurs because an outside force caused it to, it's, it's just naturally occurring. Um, and therefore it's generally avoidable, right? Whereas in an, uh, when you're talking about equity as a concept, right, there's like a moral imperative around we have to, you know, well, really, I'll start with equality, because a lot of people think about equality and they think about it as, well, we need equality and justice. What they're really trying to say is everybody has to get the same thing, right? But when you're talking about a system that's based on equality, that really just completely overlooks the needs, the unique needs that a population might need, that a community might need because of something that happened way before they were able to make decisions on their own, right? So if I were to say the main difference between disparity, equality, and equity, a disparity is a difference. The concept of equality, it means that you give everybody the same thing. The concept of equity means that you give everybody the things that they need which may not be the same thing all the time, right? So a lot of times in the AMA, when I'm talking to, when I'm giving presentations, I use a graph that shows, you know, three people are trying to reach these apples in the tree, right? One person is really short, the other person's medium height, and the other person's really tall. So from an equity standpoint, or an inequity standpoint, really, the person who's really, really tall can just reach their arm up and, and grab an apple. The person who, is is medium height will probably have to jump. The person who's really short will never reach those apples. If you're talking about looking, and so and so, that is not a disparity in the sense that that is an unavoidable difference. Excuse me, in the sense that it, that is a that is an unavoidable difference. So in that way, there's a harm because they both all three of them have to eat, right? From a system of equality, someone might say, okay, we'll just give everybody one box to stand on. Well, if you give the tall person the same level box to stand on as the short person, the tall person is probably just going to be able to reach more apples, have more opportunity, be healthier and happier because they have more things to grab. The medium person probably won't have to jump anymore and they can grab one apple. The small person will probably still not be able to really reach. But if you're talking about a system of equity, don't give the tall person a box to stand on. Maybe just give the medium person one box to stand on and the small person three boxes to stand on. That way, everybody has what they need to reach the opportunities that make their, their lives much better, that make them have healthier and eventually make them happier. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, this focus on need, I think, is so important if we're really concerned about the health and well-being of our communities. Mm -hmm. We have to attend to the actual needs that people have and understanding that those needs may be different for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Precisely. So... I'm wondering now um, if you could talk to us about, you know, obviously, you know, we can't avoid coronavirus and no. the effects that it's ha 
had on 2020 and that it will continue to have even in 2021 and potentially, you know, beyond that as well. I'm sure none of us thought, you know, had 2020 coronavirus on our vision boards. <laughs> we weren't prepared for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how, how can we um, continue to move through this and even beyond this moment? Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to everybody who has who feels like they're at a serious loss right now in terms of being able to see who you want, go where you want to go um, and do what you want to do. But also realize that if you are having those thoughts to some degree, you have you're operating under a level of privilege that we have to be attuned to, that we have to be grateful for. And that in the aftermath of COVID, we want, to con we want to ask ourselves, do we want that for everybody, right? Do we want everyone to be able to say, if it weren't for COVID, I'd be able to do X, Y, and Z, as opposed to if there weren't a pandemic, sometimes people wouldn't have those choices to make to begin with. So in terms of moving through and what we need right now, we, we absolutely, there's some things that only science can really bring us to, right? And that, but the science itself is going to take time in waiting for the science to develop and by the science i mean the vaccines to come through and to be tested tried and true and to be marketed and messaged in a way that people will actually trust right so that whole we, we you know we can get into that trust factor um but before then we have to we have to depend on public health we have to depend on the innovations that are tried and true with respect to public health so that is physical distancing that has to do with mask wearing your mask it also has to do with 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 sanitation proper sanitation like all of these things are really very um you might be tired of wearing your mask you might be tired of staying within your own little bubble but it really is to your to your benefit the thing about the the um the novel coronavirus um covid19 is that it is so new science does not yet know all the ways that it impacts us. What we do know so far is that, of course, it's spread um, through coughing, through sneezing, through laughing, through, you know, through talking, through breathing, right? Everyone who's anyone can carry it, which is why when we wear a mask, we have to wear your mask over your nose and over your mouth. When you take your mask off, say, for instance, to take a drink or, um, or to eat something, it's not sufficient to move your mask below your neck because what happens is all of this is already exposed. So any germs that are on your neck and you just move your mask down. Now all you've done is just caught the, caught the germs in your mask and then you just put it right back on your face. And all of us to some extent are guilty of having done that. But I'm telling you, don't do that because you, you'll, you're, you'll just expose yourself in a way that you didn't consider. The other thing we, we really do have to be considerate of is, you know, as you said earlier, Thanksgiving's coming up. We're, we're so used to being in touch with our family and our friends um, for these for holidays if, if, you, if you celebrate. I would suggest to just really being very intentional about spending time with people um, in smaller groups. So right now, the national consideration is no more than 10 people gathered. But I would say keep it even less than that, right? Because now we're, what we're seeing is that most of, the, in, most of the spikes in infection are coming because people are in touch with their family and friends and they're in, in closed spaces um, in the house gathering. That's where the spikes of infection are coming from. Um, so I would encourage you, if you have access to outdoor spaces and you want to gather, like in a backyard or something, maintain that six feet. What we also do know, and the science is catching up, is that there are cases of COVID that are related 
to people standing with each other within six feet for more than 15 minutes. So for those who are even asymptomatic and you might be carrying the virus unbeknownst to someone else, even if you're standing six feet, if you're there for more than 15 minutes, you are at risk for, for contracting COVID-19. Um, and, and, you know, and so that's another scary thing. People will also argue, well, I probably had COVID in January or February, so I can't get it again, I'll be fine. Well, this is the thing about COVID-19 uh, as the novel coronavirus. It is not a DNA-related virus. It is an RNA-related virus, which you don't have to know the science, but I'll just break it down real quick. The, the, the biology of the, of, of the RNA changes all the time, right? And so any type of virus that you might have had before doesn't mean that you won't, uh, you won't contract another virus that is, that is also COVID, another strand of the virus, right? You are still um, likely to, to contract the virus if you're exposed to it. So don't use that excuse either, like, okay, well, I can get, to, get with my family because we all had COVID and so we won't get it again. No, you'll just reinfect each other and it'll probably be a more virulent strain. And that's not cool. You don't want to do that either. It's not fun. We're not going to be in this moment forever. But consider things that this moment does bring. You know, hopefully you all, your families are well, you're not sick. Um, but if you are, this is a time to rally around and just, again, come to a spirit of gratitude and, and, and think about, you know, what is it that you want to see two years from now, right? Because that's primarily when we're gonna come out. It's gonna, it's gonna take some time. What do you wanna see for yourself? What do you wanna see for your community? What do you wanna see for, for, for you know, the larger local area and what do you want to see for, for the nation and just get in where you fit in in terms of really ensuring that we reach that vision so rely on the science stay close to your people keep well in terms of the public health um, um, protocols and wait it out mm -hmm. yeah it's stay gracious <laughs> That waiting period, I see, think, is getting harder and harder for yeah. people. Um, and I think we've seen that, obviously, across the U.S. as cases are spiking, of course, here in Memphis, you know, as well. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on why we see so much resistance? Um, not just, I don't think it's just because of kind of the exhaustion from coronavirus, right? But just in general, like what are some, why are people so resistant to wearing the mask, wearing it properly, one of my pet peeves, over the nose and your mouth. As <laughs> uh, but why, you know, what, what is all this resistance about when it comes to considering, you know, other people's health or maybe it's even your own health? I don't know, what do, what do you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with whether or not we see ourselves in one another, right? This actual idea of community is being tested as a result of COVID. If, and, and this brings me back to the conversation earlier about social ties. If one has weak social ties on a, you know, even just on a, on a national level, then likely we will, we will see consistent um, resistance. The thing about health, and, and I mentioned this before when we talk about political determinants of health, health and health decisions are political. A lot of times people make decisions based on their, the identities that they find to be most salient, right? So if someone identifies with an idea that says the science is wrong, public health leaders are wrong, therefore I'm going to do what I want to do, then that's just what they're gonna do. That's where the resistance will come in. The other thing has to do with, like I said, whether or not we see ourselves in someone else. 
it's it's the thing about COVID-19 and the, the, the public health protocols, it's not even so much that we do the protocols to, pro to protect ourselves. It really is a disease that, ha that, that a virus that forces us to think about someone else. Because we don't know, especially if you're not getting tested on a consistent basis, whether or not you've been exposed. And if you don't know that you've been exposed, you don't know how to protect someone else. So a lot of resistance comes in, com comes with the fact that we're reluctant to see you know, someone you love and someone you don't know. If I can look at a stranger on the street and be maskless and walk right by them without any second thought, that's scary. Mm -hmm. That's that's when I become the threat. And that's when I have to ask myself, you know, why why am I like this? What are what you know, what experiences have I had that make me disregard this person's well being, you know, simply because I'm not wearing a mask, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so a lot of the resistance resistance is is political in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what you talked, what you hit on there was so key as far as like, do I see myself in the people around me? Do the, you know? Do I see that connection? Do I feel responsible for the people around me? And a lot of ways, because we are a very individualistic nation yep. that individualism is you know so important to how we all see ourselves um, it's very hard then to make that transition to seeing ourselves as part of one big community and the other thing with that too is sometimes we might discount the power that we have as individuals and and i and i know we've been harping on systems we've been talking about the collective um, but this is a conversation where I do want to come back to the power of the person, right? In the sense that all of us have a sphere of influence. If you're going to do the right thing, right, as the science has demonstrated to us what the right thing is right now, trust and believe somebody's watching. Somebody's watching you. Somebody's considering doing the right thing because you did it, right? So you have to be emboldened and really stand in the fact that each one of us has power, and the way that we weld the power matters, right? Especially in this case, it happens to be a life or death or sickness or, or in health type of situation, right? So consider the fact that, that, you know, we're powerful, we're powerful individuals that make impact on the population. So believe that and hold strong to that. And say, if, if, if you go to a friend's house and the friend is like, um, F that mass situation, you don't have to do that, you know, um, then, you all make that decision for yourselves, but just understand that it is a decision that, that you can make, that you have the power to make, that, and you have the power to really influence what the trend is, what you do. Be that early innovator and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. Yes, spheres of influence. I love that. I'm always talking about spheres of <laughs> influence because you don't have to be uh, an elected official. You don't have to be a celebrity. You don't have to be, you know, an influencer, right? You don't have to be any of those things to have influence. We all have influence in our, you know, immediate families, in our friend circles, and even on our social media. Again, not having to be an influencer with thousands of followers, but we still have influence in those in similar ways. And I love that idea of using our influence for good. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of influence, um, we're going to take an, another break, but after we come back, I'd like us to talk about how the new administration and their influence and how that may affect some of our national health focus moving forward. So this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM.
And we're back on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and we're here with Mia Keys and we're talking about health. So a new year is right around the corner. We made it, y'all. <laughs> um, this is 2020. And while we don't know exactly what 2021 will bring, we do know there will be a new administration. And this may affect and probably will affect some of our approaches to coronavirus, but potentially our national health focus in a few different ways. Um, and I want to talk about our VP elect, uh, Kamala Harris, who is the first of so many different things, right? She's the first Black and Asian woman. She is the first daughter of immigrants, right, in this position. She is also child-free by choice. Um, and just up until six years ago, she was a single professional woman. So really a trailblazer in so many different arenas. But I think just kind of who she she is, what she represents and embodies, um, really opens the door for a lot of different conversations um, about health and potential health focus moving forward. Um, so thinking about, you know, fertility or even maternal health crises of Black and Brown women, um, or even just thinking about her being a very high-powered Black woman, right? And I'd really like for us to talk about what her being in this position might then impact in terms of what we're thinking about as it relates to health. Yeah, well, well as I mentioned, Sana, health is political, right? And always across history since the founding and even prior to the founding of the US as a nation, who is in office matters in terms of the eventual health decisions that each of our communities can make and we as individuals can make, right? It, it really is in that way um, a, a trickle down effect. But at the same time, in terms of who, get, who reaches power, that's a ground up type of, type of uh, differential, right? And so what I would say about the health agenda moving forward, what we will see is a pressure unlike what we've witnessed before to really center equity focused policies, right? We're seeing it now in terms of what the new administration is putting in place for um, focus on, on economics, which we already know is a fundamental cause of health, right? We're, we're researchers. We can really talk about the 1995 foundational article by uh, Lincoln Phelan who, you know, who basically said, hey, it matters in terms of how much money you make, um, your, you know, what, what level of education you have, irrespective of, of race in that way, in, in some ways, but it compli race complicates it. Um, and that matters in terms of the health, health decisions we can make. So I'm really very um, cautiously optimistic to see the administration move in this direction of centering equity, even in its economics conversations. When it comes, you know, to health, overall and, and what Kamala Harris stands for, you know, this woman is, has been a trailblazer in the Senate. She has in her, um, in her extensive track record, put forth policies that center the conversation around maternal wellness, right? Maternal morbidity and mortality, especially because we're, we're at a point in our nation where, you know, talk about a crisis in the, you know, an enduring crisis that we have right now is the maternal mortality rates of especially black and brown women, which impact all of us here in the, U in the U.S. from a demographic standpoint, right? Um, the thing about 
what's happening with black and brown women in the US is that 60% of, of, you know, well, rather I'll say black and brown women are dying at three and four times the rate of, of white women, you know, and, and, and sickness is, is, is quite similar. We really, we rank as like last, you know, in terms of health outcomes, maternal health outcomes across all of the countries with the highest GDP. We come under countries like Malta and Croatia with respect to, to outcomes in, in birth. And it's really deplorable and it's also just quite sad. And so Kamala Harris knows this. She put out policy when she was, you know, as a senator, um, eventually um, giving voice to and acknowledging this disparity, or excuse me, this inequity, rather, because we talked about the difference in that language before. Um, this is an unavoid. This is a, an avoidable crisis. So it's a, it's an inequity. Um, and and her her legislation speaks to what she will likely do as as vice president. She will probably we will we will definitely see. Uh, a, a greater focus on women's health, right? We will see a, a greater focus, and not just not just in terms of reproductive health, right? Because we do know that women are really are the trailblazers in terms of everyone getting on board for health. People who are partnered with women, especially especially male partners, go to and see their their primary care physician much more frequently than those who are not, right? Um, we see, we will likely see an investment in public health works to keep women um, who are on Medicaid, for instance, on Medicaid past their postpartum, the 60-day postpartum. Right now, when if you're on Medicaid, you are allotted insurance for 60 days after you give birth. But that's not enough, right? And so I imagine Kamala Harris will really make sure that we, that, that women who are on Medicaid um, and, and those who love them will have insurance for the first year after giving birth, and, and women need that. Um, we'll likely also see standardization in terms of collection of data. If, if COVID-19 has shown us nothing else, it really shows us the power of data. We don't have data that speak to what we need. And with respect to maternal health, we don't have all of the statistics to direct us to the actions that need to that we need to take in order to remedy this, um, this crisis, right? So I, I do foresee her making sure that Congress is aligned in passing policies that protect the most vulnerable of this nation, and, and historically, those are women and the children to whom they give birth. So that's that's the part about maternal health that I'll say. You also mentioned some things about uh, her being child-free and her being, you know, unmarried. And for those of us again who are really very enterprising women, you know, um, who are also interested in relationship building who also are, are potentially interested in creating a family for themselves, we don't have to sacrifice it all, right? Kamala Harris is prime example of that. All of the things that she has achieved, she's done with a really right social network around her. I don't know this woman's dating profile, but she did decide at one point, I'm going to make sure that I hone my skills so that I have deep impact on this community so that people's people can make better and healthier choices for themselves. Oh, and by the way, as a woman, I recognize my desire for partnership, my desire for friendship, my desire for connectedness. Let's go and get with Doug. And now I have these bonus children, right? These are all decisions that she, she had to, to have made and probably not without struggle in terms of making them. So this is, you know, as a, as a, as a woman who is, who is sing, single in the sense that I'm not married, because I think boyfriend might be watching this, so I will, you know, I will, I will say that, you know, 
I will say that, you know, if it ever came down to it, if I were to, to decide, you know, to delay marriage or 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 never be partnered in, in that social institution way, Kamala Harris is, makes it okay yes. for a lot of people. Yes, yeah. I love that. You know, when I learned that she, you know, had is really recently married, you know, only been married for a handful of years, but a very powerful woman, obviously a very determined woman um, who has accomplished so much. Honestly, I, you know, I was like really encouraged by that for the same reasons that you just articulated, right? Because um, I too am single, i.e. not married. <laughs> but, um, you know, just think about, we don't have you know, models really for powerful women who are single. Um, so much in society is pushing, especially on women, you know, the need to be married, the need to have children, you know, these very kind of traditional views. And so to see a VP elect who waited until later in her life, what we would consider later in her life, you know, to get married right. and um, to have a family in that sense, I think is very, uh, very empowering and very encouraging that there are a range of ways that we can do this thing called life. And yes feel very much valid mm -hmm. absolutely it really just just turns the the validity and value of womanhood on its head right mm -hmm. that we can literally achieve it all i think this is what you know the 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 femininity fight had eventually had initially been about right like yes we want to have the family and we want to ensure that we're bringing serious progress and and insight into these professional spaces and we can do both right it's not going to make make us you know less of a performer in one to the other frankly i find that being so involved in um, and civically engaged and really um passionate about what i do makes me a better friend makes me a better lover makes me a better person like and and my relationships really help me to keep focus into what's important when I'm feeling very bogged down with respect to work, with respect to what's going on in, in the state of the world. So I'm here for it. I'm here for her. I'm here for what she stands for. I appreciate her. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And you need to keep doing what you're doing, too. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think it also really reframes what partnership looks like. Um, if mm. you are thinking about, you know, heterosexual partnerships, I mean, Kamala mm -hmm. Harris's husband is obviously very supportive and yes. also very empowered um, by having a woman who is um, very focused on her career and focused on positively impacting the community. And I think that's a different role for men uh, to see themselves in as well. That is very important to be the supportive partner. Uh, we mm -hmm. often see it framed as the woman has to be the supportive partner when her you know, man is out front shining, right? Mm -hmm. and see that kind of flipped. And I think that's so important um, for young men to see that as well as a model for what it might look like in a partnership. That's such a significant point, really. Yeah. You said you said all the words there that matter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, these little boys are going to be aspiring to be really great, you know, second husbands or something like that. Or would he be the first husband? Because he's married. He's the only one. First husband to the second whatever yeah that's right it. it's so complicated <laughs> um well i want to ask you about your children's book 
Okay. Yeah. All blue, full of valor. So yeah. for our listeners, can you tell us about the children's book and mm-hmm. what it's about, but then also why a children's book? Yeah. Well, okay. So it's about a little boy named Cole Bloom who he lives, he initially he lives like in the, in the county somewhere. And then he moves to the big city with his mother, his father, his sister, and his grandmother. And he notices that, in, that his city is sick, right? So he sees a lot of trash strewn all over the street. He sees um, people are loitering and like a lot of his a lot of his classmates may not go to school when they when they ought to. It could be that um, maybe their their parents are not home and they're not sending sending them. It's, it's, that part is, is uh, insinuated in the book. Some of the grocery stores aren't really very yielding or, or making available fresh fruits and vegetables. And so he he really wants to heal people, right? And so, but he also wants to heal his streets. He wants to, he wants to heal his community. And so it's a story about Cole becoming older and at every point in his life, his grandmother is encouraging him to keep at his initial goal as a child of wanting to heal people, of wanting to heal his streets. And so he becomes a doctor and I won't give away the end of the story, but it really is super cute. It's told in the voice of, of his grandmother. Um, and why a children's book? Well, I, I wrote the children's book, really it's a children's book for adults to understand, to, to understand and grasp and talk with their families, including children about hard issues like racism, health inequities, health justice, health disparities, right? That's really what it's about. And I did it uh, as a, as a, um, as a, I, I submitted the book to the National Academy of Medicine for their culture of health, visualizing health equity um, art display uh, several years ago. And um, I was just, at the time I was in grad school, and I was very encouraged by where I thought I saw people going with respect to marrying health and medicine and policy, right? And so there's place there. And so that was a story I wanted to tell. And hopefully you'll see more of Cold Blue um, in the future. Uh, I, I keep getting a, a bunch of people asking me if I'm interested in moving the series forward, and, and I am. Right now though, uh, it is available online. And not to buy, you can literally just read it online, but, but it's limited in terms of the illustrations online. Yeah, but it's, it's a gorgeous story. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love the idea of a children's book because, as you mentioned, adults learn so much from children's books, right? Yes. <laughs> um, adults are learning right along with the kids that they're sharing these stories with. And just thinking about this story as really drawing out the social determinants of health mm-hmm. and all the different aspects of what we think of as health, again, not just the individual, but also the systemic and the policy decisions. Mm-hmm. So I love that you have this absolutely beautiful children's book to really break <laughs> down big concepts, but actually yeah. show us how they show up in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so- fun to write it. Oh, I bet. Um, <laughs> so we're reaching the end of our time here together, but I just wanted to ask you one more question. Since we mm-hmm. are thinking about health and the many facets of health, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about your own self-care, especially in 2020. Uh, yeah. Do you have any daily rituals for self-care? self-care? I do. And I will say that it doesn't mean I get to it at the same time every day, although I strive to. So when I wake up, 
in the morning and I tend to wake up early because I write in the morning. As, as you mentioned, I'm a nonfiction writer, so the writing has to happen in the morning before the rest of the day gets going. But before I get out of bed to write, I literally just lay there and I have a refrain of just thank you, thank you, thank you in my head, right? So for me, and from a faith perspective, I'm talking to God, I'm talking to the universe, right? But I'm also talking to myself. I'm talking to those who came before me. I'm, I'm also giving thanks to those who are around me in this present moment, right? So really just setting my day in a space of gratitude before the loud comes in, right? So I do that in my most quiet moment. Um, and it's almost dreamlike. So in that state of semi-consciousness, I'm, I'm embedding gratitude there. Um, and then I usually turn on, I have a, I, I use um, Headspace as a meditation app. And for me, meditation is, is just, uh, it's a practice of mindfulness, right? And the more one is mindful and aware in the present moment, it brings about greater focus to tasks. It brings about a greater sense of clarity and peace, especially when things get helter-skelter. So that practice is really very important to me. And then I also, I now have a dog, which is a new thing. So I, I very soon after I wake up, I have to walk him, but, but, <laughs> but before I get to walking him, that's when I, you know, I, I do the writing. Um, I, as a writer, I'm also a reader. So I try to, to pop in some reading in, the, in, the, um, in between the giving thanks and the writing. And then I go walk the dog. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing those rituals. I mean, in this time where, again, 2020, so much is uncertain. I think having these rituals that keep us grounded and just keep us uh, mindful of how much we do have to be thankful for is so important, especially mm -hmm. now. So I love that. Well, Mia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I definitely enjoyed having you. You downloaded so much great information. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you for this platform, for your questions, for your engagement, for just your spirit. You're doing you're doing big things. I'm very excited for you, super happy for you, and proud that you're in, within my social network. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. I am so <laughs> blessed to have you in my social network. Y'all should know, obviously, well, I mean, I'm sure y'all have already gathered from listening to this morning that me and I are friends and we've known each other for years. Uh, but Mia really showed me um, and reiterated the value of cultivating relationships, mm. being fully present um, in our time with our friends and loved ones. So that is something that I really credit to Mia, and it has far-reaching benefits, as we learned today, even those health benefits as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. And what you've given me, in terms of words, I could take up a whole nother, um, you know, broadcast for this, but, but what I will say is, you know, you are undaunted in terms of realizing what your gifts are and, and where you need to show up and how, how you can be a benefit. But the fact is that it also pleases you, you know, and, and, and that's also a beautiful thing that you, you see it both ways. So thank you for that gift. All right. Well, thank you, Mia. We've ha enjoyed having you this morning. Thank you all for joining us this morning on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I hope you'll join me again next Saturday morning and every Saturday morning.